Hi, I'm Douglas Beale. I'm a interventional radiologist and interventional pain management. I'm dual board certified, and I have a practice treating patients with all kinds of pain issues. Primarily, one of the biggest things I see is vertebral compression fractures. There's about a million vertebral fractures around the United States every year. It's one of the most common things that happens worldwide. Vertebral fractures are notable not only for being common, but they can be exceedingly painful. The reason why fractures are incredibly important is vertebral fractures are associated with an exceedingly high rate of mortality. Kali Osteoporosis International 2000 reported the relative rate of mortality of 8.6 times age mass controls for, for death associated with debilitation caused by vertebral compression fractures. And the rate of mortality in that same patient data set was 6.7 times age mass controls for hip fractures. So not to say that the spine is worse than the hip, but in most of the studies, we can suffice it to say that it is about the same as, as hip fractures. Everyone knows it's about hip fractures and the fact that if somebody falls from a standing height or has a low-velocity injury, that a hip fracture is indicative of osteoporosis and you need to treat the patient because if you don't, they will suffer morbid injury and, and, and die at exceedingly high rates. The rate is about 50% studying in women or not quite the woman they once were in terms of function and mobility after a hip fracture. Spine fractures are better than that after repair of the spine fracture, but they, it still is associated with an incredibly high rate of morbidity and mortality. Fractures are associated with equally as bad outcomes in terms of mortality, for sure, but also associated with bad morbidities. In a 2011 Journal of Bone Mineral Research article by Ednan et al., he reported that for each spine fracture that was presented for treatment, if you treat that fracture, you prolong somebody's life. That article, along with a follow-up article by the same author, authors Chen, Zampini, Lang, Ong, all are massive articles that report uh, statistic consistency of decreasing somebody's mortality by treating the fracture with augmentation. So patients that have vertebral fractures that are low-velocity injuries, by definition, are oste have osteoporosis or are osteoporotic. Low-velocity injury that produces a fracture in anything except a finger or a toe is diagnostic of osteoporosis. Low-velocity injury that produces a fracture of the proximal humerus, uh, distal radius, uh, hip, spine, are all by definition, osteoporotic fractures. And if you were to say one thing about fractures and the treatment of spine fractures, at least, and say one thing about osteoporosis and the treatment of spine fractures, is that it's under-recognized and under-treated. If we just turn to hip fractures, and hip fractures is not something you can fake as being osteoporotic. I mean, you fall from a standing height or you have another low-velocity injury, you have a hip fracture. People are unable to walk with hip fractures. The difference between hip and spine fractures, you can walk with a spine fracture, you cannot walk with a hip fracture. And if it's the, the injury type is noted, you know for sure that the patient has osteoporosis. So if you, we roll it back to the turn of the millennium, just after the year 2002, there were only about 40, 41% of patients that were being treated for their underlying disorder of osteoporosis, even after hip fracture. And that was kind of right at and before the advent of anabolic bone agents.
right before teriparatide. Now, fast forward to 2018, the most recent paper that I've seen for treating patients for their underlying disorder after a hip fracture was 17%. So as medications have improved, we now have two other antibiotic bone agents, abaloperitide and romazosumab. Our recognition and treatment of the underlying disorder has not improved. This fact has gotten worse in a condition that treatment is absolutely important. There are two real things in medicine that we do that are demonstrably life-saving and life-prolonging. You would think it would be something like angioplasty and stent placement, uh, but it's not. You'd think it'd be something like cancer surgery. It's not that either. Even breast cancer screening is difficult and controversial to prove a mortality benefit. The two things that we do that are demonstrably life-saving and life-prolonging is hip fracture repair and spine fracture repair. And the only thing better than that is prevention of these. So after fractures, people are commonly not treated. Solomon Bell data says that about 80% of people, uh, all comers, are not treated for their underlying disorder after suffering a fragility fracture. That would be very similar to somebody coming in after a heart attack followed by uh, angioplasty and stent placement, but not treating, treating their underlying disorder if they're hypercholesterolemia, cholesterol of 500 triglycerides through the roof and just kind of ignoring that. That would be similar to preventing a parapneumonic abscess and not giving somebody antibiotics for their pneumonia. Uh, Kevin Ong, Josh and I published a paper just this last year studying the entire Medicare claims database, 32 million patients with fractures, 85.1%, just a strikingly high rate of mortality associated with that. We also found that the less patients were treated for their fracture, the greater the mortality rate. But we know if people are treated for this, we decrease the rate of mortality. We, we save and prolong their life. We also know that if we treat somebody with an anabolic bone agent, for example, we can dramatically decrease the rate, absolute relative rate of a distal vertebral fracture. One of the downside seeing patients is treating their under, underlying disorder because we just aren't very good at it, nor despite the huge amount of need, we continue to underachieve in the treatment of the underlying disorder that produces that fragility fracture. The baby boomers that are now, the first baby boomers started turning 65 in 2011. And and as I tell my, my fellows, my trainees, you don't like taking care of the elderly, you need to start liking it because this is coming. This is the biggest demographic we have. And the, the ability to repair people's fragility fractures is incredibly important if this is what you do for a living. The ability to repair the fracture, although that's exceedingly important, I would submit to you that the only thing more important than the accurate and prompt treatment of a hip and spine fracture is preventing a hip and spine fracture. So prevention is probably the most important thing of all. But yet, Ironically, as the medications get better to treat this disorder, as the patient population continues to skyrocket, the appropriate demographic that gets these fractures, people over 65, we continue to be less and less adept at treating these patients. We tend to treat the patients, the underlying disorder, less and less over time in a condition that we know has a very high rate of patient injury. We just submitted a paper. We call it the NMT paper. It's called Number Needed to Treat. And this is a very elegant statistical analytic point that means 
number of patients needed to treat to accomplish a certain treatment goal. So, for example, I mentioned angioplasty stem placement. Now, how many patients do you, would you need to treat to save somebody's life? Well, the answer is we, we can't calculate. It's too high to calculate. People give an aspirin for, to ameliorate symptoms of a stroke or a heart attack. So how many patients would that be necessary to give somebody uh, to ameliorate symptoms of a stroke? Common event. The answer is 3,000 patients to decrease symptoms of a stroke. Talk about men over 50 taking an aspirin a day. It's quite common uh, because of heart issues and myocardial infarctions. How many patients does it need to ameliorate symptoms of a heart attack if you give one aspirin a day? The answer is 1,667 patients to decrease symptoms of a heart attack, giving them an aspirin a day. How many patients does it take to save one life for one year by treating somebody's painful vertebral compression fracture? The answer is 15. So for those of you out there who are treating patients that have painful vertebral compression fractures, my hat's off to you. So statistically, for every 15 patients you treat, you're saving a life. Let me give you a close comparison. A close comparison is somebody that's brought in with a stroke. And let's say they're at a place that doesn't have the capability of having uh, interventional neuroradiology or surgical treatment of that stroke. Let's say they're one of the common places and one of the common treatments for that is intravenous thrombolysis, IV, uh, TPA, tissue plasminogen inactivator. So if somebody comes in in the golden hour of stroke, meaning between three and four and a half hours or less, that means you could give them uh, IVTPA to lyse that stroke, to dissolve the clot that's causing them the hemiparalysis or the symptoms of their stroke, whatever that may be. The number of patients, the NNT for patients needed to save one life for intravenous thrombolysis is also 15. So I want you to think about that and consider if somebody's brought in with a large stroke, an MCA stroke within the golden hours that are allowed between three and four and a half hours, would you not give them IVTPA? Of course you would. And we should be treating fractures. And the only thing better than treating a painful vertebral fracture is preventing that fracture. Fracture rates continue to increase and they're not abating. Part of the reason why the fracture rates increase is our continued short-sightedness of not treating this. We do a mediocre to poor job at treating the underlying disorder of osteoporosis, and we're getting worse at treating the underlying disorder of osteoporosis. To deal with this decreasing amount of treatment, I would submit to you that education and knowledge and being intellectually curious and initial motivation uh, and personal motivation to take care of this problem is probably something that is way overdue. And the initiative to focus on this is something that is certainly overdue and needs to be reevaluated and reprioritized. With that, I will say thank you for your attention, listeners. I appreciate you tuning in to listen to this. And if there are any questions, comments, uh, any issues that you would like to discuss, I would say feel free to reach out to me. I'm a good communicator, and I thank you for your attention.